Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. My dad will be so grateful. See you next time on the Mindful Fire Podcast. Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast, where we explore living mindfully on the path to financial independence and beyond. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Lori Stevens, the executive director of a nonprofit in a small town in Oregon. In today's episode, you'll hear how Lori and her husband, Doug, reached financial independence and retired by the age of 40. You'll hear how their path to financial independence started from a vision that Doug had to create a life filled with play and how he used this vision to intentionally choose his career path so that he could make good money, work for a time, and then retire to a life filled with play. And you'll hear how Doug brought Lori into this vision and helped her build the confidence that retiring early was actually possible. And you'll hear about what they've been up to after retiring at the age of 40. We'll also explore Lori's thoughts on the difference between being frugal and being cheap. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with my friend, Lori Stevens. Lori, welcome to the Mindful Fire podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Adam. I'm looking forward to it. So I'd love to start by inviting you to share with our audience who you are and what you're doing in the world. Let's start with what I do. (laughs) So right now, I've been working for four years as the executive director of a a nonprofit here in a small town in Oregon. Um, And that nonprofit uh, supports our K through 12 school system uh, through scholarships for kids to go to college and um, grants to teachers to do like cool, innovative stuff in their classrooms. Um, We also support low-income kids to uh, be able to participate in uh, sports in middle school. Unfortunately, with budget cuts, kids have to pay now to participate, particularly in middle school sports. So we're sort of supporting kids and teachers in in our district here. That's a part-time position and uh, flexible hours. So it's been a good fit for me uh, with, with where I'm at right now and kind of looking to the next phase. I think I would love to hear your career path and how you ended up where we are right now. So I grew up on the East Coast, went to college in Virginia. I knew I I was interested in science. And so I thought maybe medical school, but the age of 18 or 19 was really terrified by the thought of becoming a doctor and like killing someone. You know, having that responsibility for someone's life. And I also wasn't 100% sure that that's what I wanted. So I um, I majored in biology and I ended up taking a couple years off after I graduated to work in a research lab. And then I applied to graduate school. I'd always wanted to live somewhere else, like on the West Coast. And so I applied to Berkeley and was accepted and bent the next 13 years in the Bay Area, got my graduate degree, my doctorate in developmental biology, sort of a special side of that cell and molecular biology, and did a postdoctoral study fellowship at uh, UC San Francisco um, for several years. And it was there that I met my husband. He was a chemical engineer at a biotech company nearby. And we started doing fun stuff together. He's a very outdoorsy person. And uh, I got a job at a local biotech company in the Bay Area for a couple of years and wasn't very happy doing that. But 
meanwhile, we had decided to start a family. So um, that sort of changed everything when we sort of talk about that whole financial independence, retire early aspect of things. That definitely had an impact and it affected our decision to move away from the Bay Area because of we just did the math and it was just going to be really hard to have a kid, have a home and have quality time with a kid. So my husband accepted a job at a biotech company up in the Seattle area. And so we left the Bay Area. I'd, I'd been there 13 years and I loved it. But we left and we had a small child. He was only two months old when we left. And uh, I decided to step away from my career in order to be home. And that was a tough choice. But I ended up working part-time at University of Washington um, teaching biology. And I enjoyed that a lot more than the research. And meanwhile, my, my husband was working at a biotech company in, in the Seattle area. And we had a second kid. And that's when the possibility of actually retiring early presented itself. So at that point, we looked around very consciously at where we would want to live if we didn't have to be tied to a location to work. And we chose a small town in Oregon to uh, basically retire to. And the kids were three and five when we did that. It felt like jumping off a cliff. We literally left everything, two jobs, a house, and bought another house here in Oregon and decided to start this retirement plan. What that meant for me was I had the freedom to really look at what I wanted to do for fun instead of for income. And I decided to become a bicycle tour guide because I wanted to travel. My husband was able to be home with the kids. I didn't want to be home full-time. I'd been there for almost five years, you know, working part-time, but spending a lot of time with the kids, and I was ready to get out. I was ready to bust out. <laughs> and so he stayed home, and for 12 years, not full-time, but for 12 years, I worked as a bicycle tour guide, traveling all over the West, Hawaii, New Zealand, and I led multi-day you know, sort of deluxe bicycle tours. By the end of that, my kids were in high school and I suddenly realized that they were going to be gone. And so uh, I quit that job and was unemployed for a couple of years and didn't really want a job. Then as my younger son started to enter his senior year of high school, this particular position as the executive director with uh, this foundation I work for just fell into my lap. I mean, I literally wasn't looking for it. It just fell into my lap and it seemed like a good fit. That's like kind of a long nutshell, but that's how I got to where I am now. <laughs> very cool. I did not know any of that. That is very interesting. <laughs> that is a lot of schooling. <laughs> that's a lot of schooling. And I only yes. worked in the field for two years after four years of college, five years of graduate school, two to four years of postdoctoral stuff, and then two years of working in the field. I did, however, it did allow me to teach at University of Washington, yes. which I really did enjoy that. But what I learned along the way, and it took a long time, was that lab research was not, was not a good fit for me. And I don't regret it now. I, I think going through that PhD program gave me a tremendous amount of confidence and it just sort of, you know, you have to do something while you're growing up, right? So <laughs> might as well be something that, uh, you know, if it doesn't advance your career, at least it advances your sense of your abilities and your, you know, your ability to face challenge and, and to trust yourself to be able to survive in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you moved up to Washington for a time. That's where you did the teaching at the University of Washington and then decided 
hey, we want to find where we want to live forever or for the long term. Right. Is that kind of the thought right. process? Yes. Right. So, and we had, my husband's an engineer, so we did this using a spreadsheet, you know. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. He used a spreadsheet. I basically used my gut, which hasn't always guided me 100% perfectly. But this time, I think it did. As soon as we drove into town, I was like, okay, honey, this is it. And he said, it is. How do you know? I'm like, that's all. I just, I just know. So that was kind of cool. And I, I really, I've had few, you know, few regrets. There's a few things that have been a little more challenging here as far as like diversity and, the kids kind of getting exposed to a wider range of cultures and things like that. That's been a little bit more difficult living in a semi-rural town in Oregon. So I always wonder what would have happened if we'd raised them in the Bay Area, because I think that would have influenced them quite differently. But you do what you can, you know, and they've right. turned out okay <laughs> so far. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So how did you decide on hood river oregon like you sound sound like you drove into the town and were like yeah this one will work but how did that um, end up on the spreadsheet list i asked yeah this is kind of that's what 2020 was supposed to be for our family uh, trying out some oh. different places figuring out okay where do we want to live we knew the bay area wasn't right. going to be a long-term solution for many of the same reasons right. that you said but right. uh, obviously, uh, 2020 had different different plans. So we'd yeah. love to hear kind of how you thought about that list and, and went about figuring out where you did want to live for the long term. Because we were at that point looking at essentially being financially independent, we needed to, we couldn't live anywhere. You know, we couldn't buy five houses and live anywhere we wanted. So we felt like we needed to make a smart choice and move somewhere probably not in a big city in the west coast because the real estate was just too expensive and cost of living in general um so we we wanted a small-ish town that was within roughly an hour to an hour and a half of a major airport we wanted to be near great outdoor recreation opportunities because that's basically what we both love my husband more even than myself and we also wanted decent schools for the kids, um, decent public schools. We don't want to send the kids to private schools and a community with a little bit of diversity, if possible. The high school is about 50% Latino. And so we definitely wanted to move somewhere, staying on the West Coast, maybe California, but it just felt like California was getting really expensive everywhere. So we checked out uh, Oregon and there were a few communities that we explored, but this one seemed to just be a good fit. Yeah. And, and, and for all the reasons I mentioned, basically, you know, recreation schools, proximity to a, you know, a large metropolitan airport, just livability, affordability, and decent weather. <laughs> I yeah. wanted to get away yeah. from some of that rain. <laughs> I bet. And it's still rainy here, but not as bad as, yeah, outside Seattle. So, yeah. Right. Cool. Well, that kind of brings up a good point. It sounded like the idea of reaching financial independence was very much top of mind for you both. Um, and yeah. you ultimately ended up retiring early at 40 when, when both you and your husband were 40, right? Right. Right around there. Yeah. 40, 41. Yeah. Got it. And so how did that 
conversation come up? Like, how did you discover that this was possible? And how did you come together to set that goal of reaching financial independence? Like, what was that discovery like? Well, really good question. I was asking my husband about this just the other day. It's like, when, because I, I feel like he was the primary driver in this. He talked about as a kid, he just loved playing so much that he thought to himself, I'm going to get a really good job and I'm going to make some money and then I'm going to not work and I'm going to play as an adult. Like, I don't want to work my whole life. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, a lot of kids say that and then they grow up, right? And things come along that they get distracted by either, you know, shiny objects or, or, or passion for whatever they're doing for work and things like that. He really stuck to the plan. I mean, he went to college and majored in something that he felt would he would be able to get a, a good job with good pay. And then there was some luck involved. So, you know, he ended up working in the biotech industry at a time when biotech was just taking off. And when he was working at, at that first company that he worked for, he saw a lot of his workmates and people who had been at that company for a while retiring early because they had come in at the beginning at, of this at the company. beginning of the company. So they were they yeah. were getting equity yeah. and, and being able to get in on the ground floor. And he he thought, okay, so this is possible. You just have to get in on the ground floor with a company that's going somewhere. And so shortly after we met, he took two years off just as an experiment. You know, he had made enough money to support himself. He also is very frugal. He does not spend very much money at all. And he never has. And his parents were the same way. So he kind of inherited that quality. And so we, we lived very simply, you know, just the two of us. I was working at the time and he took that this, you know, two year period off just to see what that felt like. And he loved it. And he decided that, you know, what he wanted to do was find a company where he could get in on the ground floor and work really hard for a number of years, however many it took, but hopefully not very many, and then retire and then just play. <laughs> so I had a similar story, but I just didn't have the faith that this was possible. Like when I was a kid growing up, I also thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to grow up and sit in an office from nine to five every day. I mean, it sounded like torture. And indeed, the first job I had in Boston as a lab tech was torture. You know, I, I had to show up early in the morning. I got half an hour for lunch. I would go outside and sit on this little tiny stamp sized piece of grass outside the building so I could be outside. But I also didn't have the confidence that I could position myself in a way that I'd be able to retire early. So really, I have to give him a lot of the credit for this because he had the vision and then he actually was able to make it happen by very carefully selecting that next position, which was a small biotech company up in the Seattle area that offered him a position and in lieu of a huge salary, they offered stock options. This is right before the tech bubble happened and it was right before they had a major drug hit uh, FDA approval. And so it was just sort of a combination of, of believing and trusting that he could make this happen and me trusting that he could make this happen because that was, you know, a, it was like, what? You want to retire at age 40? I mean, he, he knew that when he was in college. He was like, yeah, I want to retire by the time I'm 40. And I'm like, who thinks that, you know? So <laughs> I, it was That's sort of a shock to me. <laughs> but I, I, I often say I just hitched my wagon to his train and, 
and um, we went with it. So it pretty much worked out the way he had envisioned, except that the tech bubble was bursting right around the time we wanted to retire. And so that was a little worrisome because we had done all the calculations based on what you know all these stock options would be worth when things were at their peak. And then before we could really get out because options vest and you have to wait, you can't just you know cash them in. You have to wait till you're eligible to cash them in. By the time you know we were able to do that, the market had really come down significantly. So so we had to be more careful. We had to when 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 he left that job and we moved to Oregon, we recognized that we might have to work at least part time. Mm. And we were willing to do that. You know, those five years, I often say that Doug could work or he could be a dad, but being both was not a, a viable option for him. It it was killing him, basically. Um, and so mm. those five years where we were outside of Seattle, he worked really hard and we had two little kids and it was almost not a viable situation. I mean, mm. it, it was, we were very close to cracking there. And partly because that sort of nose to the grindstone nine to five thing was not really a, a natural fit for Doug. And on top of that, parenting right. and not sleeping and all of that was really a challenge. Right. Um, Doing it in a startup environment as well, right? It's not like right. a big company, you can go in, do your thing right. and leave, right? It's like right. you're right. all in. Right. And then, right. of course, parenting two young kids is, is also all in. Right, right. <laughs> and that was never his vision. He was not like, oh, I want to be a dad no matter what. That was kind of like more my thing. So it felt like this was really a struggle for him. It was sort of sapping his life energy to try and do both. And so we knew something had to give. I, I mean, the pressure was there for him to retire, or at least leave that job before things sort of really got untenable. And fortunately we did make it through that. And we weren't sure if we were going to have to work part-time or not. I, I did. I, I worked for that bike tour company for 12 years. That didn't bring in a right. tremendous amount of income, but it helped. And Doug did a lot of other things. It, it took a big leap of faith. And, and I tend to be the more nervous, anxious person who wants to plan everything out and make sure it's all safe and okay. And Doug is much more of a risk taker in everything. And so it really, I really had to set aside a lot of my fears and um, follow his lead and trust that we weren't all just going to end up on the street somewhere begging, right. <laughs> begging for, you know, our dinner. Um, not that I thought that would happen. I mean, he kept yeah. saying, look, I can go back to work. He said, this, this is not necessarily permanent. I have skills. I trust that if, if things look are looking grim, I'll just get another job. And I recognize I could work too. We might have to move somewhere else where we could get jobs, but you know, there were options and a certain amount of confidence in our ability to go back to work if we needed to. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So it sounds like he, even from being a teenager or maybe even before, knew I just want to play. I just want to have yeah. the life of play, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I'm going to work, make some money as, as quickly and efficiently as I can so that I can go back to play. Right. And full-time play, it right. sounds like, was the, right. was the goal. Full-time, the goal, yeah. And he, he accomplished that. One thing I should mention is that when we were living in Berkeley, before we had the kids, but we were sort of talking about our future and our options, his goal had already been you know, discussed. And I was sort of still thinking that he was a little bit on the 
on the crazy optimistic side. But we somebody recommended a book which has come out again in 2018, but it's Your Money or Your Life. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if you know that book. Um, I do. It's probably, do. Uh, yeah. So that was like the only book out there in 1992 that people were talking about, you know, retiring early, looking mm -hmm. at, you know, how you spend money, why you spend money the way you do, what are those impulses and urges that are, that are causing you to actually have to have this job that you hate in order to pay for the stuff to make you feel better for the fact that you have this job that you hate. And it just, it really made sense to us, especially Doug as being somebody who does not like to spend a lot of money. It was a total fit. He's like, yeah, why would we go spend money on, you know, big cars and expensive houses and stuff like that? It's just handcuffs for the, mm -hmm. you know, the job that you have to have in order to afford all those things. And so that was an eye opener and it validated for me, it validated his mm. choices because I realized that other people out there were actually thinking about this and implementing these ideas. And he wasn't like the only person who, who had this vision. Yeah. Other people were actually doing it and making it happen. Right. And, and writing about it. Right. And it sounds like he saw people in his company also doing it. He right. Did. And so, yeah. it, you know, yeah. the idea that, okay, this is not just something I think would be great. It's like, oh, people are actually doing this. If right. I play my cards right, I can make this happen in a, a right. relatively short amount of time. Exactly. With, with some luck, with positioning yourself sure. in the right place. And, you know, the company he was working for in the Bay Area, he had not gotten in early enough to take advantage of all those, you know, generous stock option offers and things like that. He had some, but it wasn't enough to retire on. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what he sort of used for those two years that he took time off when we were living in the Bay Area, but it wasn't enough to permanently retire. And, and so he knew he needed to kind of get in on the ground floor or, or a little closer to the ground floor in order to do the retire early plan. So I'm curious about what it was that made you fully embrace this plan and realize that it was possible. <laughs> well, one of them was that his degree of unhappiness was obvious. And I felt like either he had to quit and I had to go back to work full time to you know, to, to create that sense of security or he had to quit and maybe we would both go to work part-time at something that we liked better. And I think it was just recognizing that it wasn't worth it to, to continue in this uh, direction just for the money. And, you know, that just that refrain, your money or your life, it just kept coming back. And mm. we had a lot of conversations about it and when I would bring up concerns, he would always have the backup plan. And the backup plan is, well, we go back to work. And I think that mm, that's yeah. what's the important um, fallback for me, was knowing that we weren't totally jumping off of a cliff. We had parachutes. Right. So the question about how how did he convince me maybe, or how did I feel comfortable going along with the plan, I think it was really twofold. It was partly just his confidence and his knowledge that he really, really needed to do this. And then also that there was a, there was a backup plan. We both had skills. We could, we could go back to work if we had to. And, but this was sort of an experiment. Let's see if, let's see if we can make it happen. Cool. And it sounds like 
after five years in the Seattle area, you said, okay, we're going to pick this town. We're going to go for it. At that point, was it when he retired to taking care of the kids full-time? He took care of the kids full-time, but only when I was away on trips. So I would do, say, eight to 12 one-week-long trips uh, every year, mostly in the summer months. So, you know, it was eight to 12 weeks of being away out of 52. And I have to say, initially, when I started doing this, the boys were three and five. And that that's a difficult age especially when you have two of them and they're very active. And so, you know, for any parent to be alone with the kids for seven to eight to nine days at a time when you're used to having a partner um, mm-hmm. is challenging. So, you know, he he did his part on that end and allowed me that freedom to, to do a job that was kind of a fantasy, really. I mean, I, I hadn't always had that fantasy, but... It, it was really fun for somebody who'd been home with little kids to suddenly be in these places, biking and talking to grownups and going out to great dinners and, you know, having these amazing experiences traveling. So that was definitely a bonus. Yeah. And so it sounds like you moved to Oregon into that, or was there a time when you were figuring that out? It was pretty short. We moved in August or September of 2002. And by spring of 2003, I had decided that I wanted to do this. And I applied for a position with a company that worked out of Seattle. And I was able to start guiding that summer. So you were working at this company out of Seattle, but it sounds like you would travel to places and then lead bike tours there. Right, right. How did this newly found dream come up? I'd love to hear a little bit about your thought process, knowing that you were about to approach this financial independence and this big pivotal point in your life. How are you thinking about that and what you'd be doing after that? Well, we had talked about possibly doing an outdoor guiding business because, you know, this is what my husband loved to do. And we did have to work. Maybe this would be a way to get income while doing something we'd love to do. But the more he thought about it, the less excited he was because he's really not an extrovert type person. He wants to be out doing his thing to do his thing. He doesn't want to be really holding other people's hands through the process. And on the other hand, I've, I've always been sort of in, you know, enjoyed explaining things to people, sort of taking on the teacher role. And I thought that that would be a really great way to combine being outside, being physically active, traveling, and making a little money at the same time and, you know, using those, those coaching, teaching skills and people skills. Because I really missed that being home with little kids. I really missed people. And I guess I realized that that's very, very important to me is having those social interactions. And that's not as important to my husband. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was capable, nor did I want to go through the training to do like extreme outdoor guiding, like mountaineer guiding or whitewater kayak guiding or something like that. I mean, we had done those activities, but I didn't want to take that responsibility for somebody's life. And so I thought, well, bikes, at least um, they're a little bit more responsible for their own safety. And we do basic things, obviously, to support that. But I wasn't solely responsible for people, uh, you know, isolated up on a mountaintop somewhere. And so I had started biking just for fun. And then my mom asked me if I would go on a bicycle tour with her just to accompany her. She had just started biking at age 70, 72. And she wanted to try a really easy bike tour. So we went on a bike tour together. And I thought it was super fun. And we went on a couple more together. This was before we had 
entered the retirement phase. And so there was sort of that concept in the back of my mind, well, maybe this is something I could do. And when we moved here to Oregon, I did a trip with my mom to Italy in September. And my mom and I were riding along and we were talking about the future. And she said, well, too bad. You can't do this. I think you'd be really good at it. And I said, what do you mean? Why can't I do it? She goes, well, we have two little kids. You can't travel all over, you know, doing this stuff. I'm like, wait, <laughs> why not? I don't have to be home. I have a husband who's talking about, you know, retiring or, you know, right on the verge of it. He can take care of the kids and I could do this. And she was like, well, yeah, I guess you could. Sort of like the idea that, you know, moms don't like right. just take off and become bicycle tour guides. And I think part of that was almost a challenge. It's like she, you know, she sort of threw down that gauntlet and I'm like, oh, I, I can do that if I want to. So I, you know, just came home like within a week or two and started Googling bicycle tour companies in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I found this particular company, reached out to them, had a submitted an application, had a phone interview, had an in-person interview and I got the job. And it was very, very fun for about 10 years. <laughs> In the last two years, it got a little less fun, and I knew it was time to kind of move on. It just became a little bit more rote, a little bit less creative each time. And and I was starting to feel like I was missing out on things at home. My boys were in high school. They were doing cool stuff, you know, sports, and I was missing games. I was missing birthdays. I was missing events. And I could see we were going to be empty nesters soon. And I was like, whoa, that happened really fast. I want to just be here. And not feel this, you know, conflict about, oh, no, I can't be there for that event because I've just agreed to do this bike tour in New Zealand or something. So I left the company and was home and did some volunteer stuff and filled my time with that until this other job sort of just presented itself. That's awesome. And so you were just traveling around the world and you'd go to a place and then organize the whole bike tour thing and, and take a group of people and you'd ride from place to place or right. I've never been right. on a bike yeah. tour. That sounds pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. The company would set up the basics like the hotels and, you know, have equipment available. And, and uh, sometimes we would have to drive vans from Seattle all the way out to Utah, for example. And then people would show up, you know, we'd pick them up at airports or meet them at hotels or whatever. And, and everybody load up in a van and we'd drive off and they'd ride during the day and we'd you know, move their luggage from town to town and go out to great dinners, you know, some of the best restaurants in different areas. So I was doing that in the Pacific Northwest. So some, you know, tours out to the San Juan Islands and here in Oregon, we did an or a Oregon tour that would go all the way through the Columbia River Gorge and Crater Lake and uh, up on the sides of Mount Hood and things like that. And then I went to New Zealand a couple times and the Southwest and California, uh, Central California coast, did bicycle tours along the coast. So, and the Canadian Rockies. So, I mean, I got around. It was, I got to see some really cool places. Yeah. And get paid for it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I felt pretty lucky. Right. And so it sounds like that provided some income to cover the living expenses of, you know, having yeah. a house and a life and two boys. Did the plan of retiring on the stock options and this uh, money that you guys had saved up to that point also uh, bear fruit despite the crash of a tech market back then? Yeah, definitely. So we had a nest egg to start from, from those, those stock options. And we knew that we couldn't just sit on it and you know tuck it under the mattress and spend it because it would be 
gone within a certain period of time. I, I don't know how long it would have lasted at our current spending rate, but we knew to make this work, we had to invest it, it in the stock market. And so without that, we probably would not have been able to keep this going as long as we have. So that was a critical component. And we were very careful to work with a financial planner to make sure we were only withdrawing as much as the portfolio could really sustain and we really wanted it to continue to grow. So so we were right. pretty conservative with what we were drawing out of that. But we had to we had to pull money out on a monthly basis to to cover our costs because bicycle tour guiding eight to twelve weeks a year wasn't gonna support the family. Mm, <laughs> you know, it. that was that was right. extra. That was extra and it helped us from having to pull more money out of uh, our investments. So that allowed them to grow. Uh, over time. And, and I think we're at a point now where um, when I do ultimately, you know, retire full time from this position and, and, and not do this anymore, that we'll, we'll be okay. We don't need that additional income anymore because mm-hmm. of that sort of cultivating of the, of the nest egg to the point where it's basically producing enough for us to live on right. indefinitely. Right. Because it's yeah. been growing this whole time while you were earning right. some income to live off. Of. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, that that's really interesting to hear. Do you have a sense for what percentage you were living off of of the nest egg? Yeah, probably two to three percent. Okay, um, so very conservative. Yeah, pretty conservative. Yeah, I mean it it would fluctuate, and sometimes we would pull back during like during the two thousand two seven two thousand eight two thousand nine period. We dropped down what we pulled out of there because we were concerned about allowing it to recover. Um, so we we go through phases and do it periodically where we assess our expenses and say how can we cut back you know what can we not mm-hmm. do what can we what what can we get rid of and during that time we told the kids we're on the austerity program kids we're not buying anything you know so they now know that term austerity program yeah, it's yeah. like no we're we're not buying anything you know you no want frills, that so and so no frills. Yeah, go get a job. I mean you know cut yeah. somebody's lawn. I don't know. So it wasn't like we were gonna starve and we only could eat rice and beans or anything but it's a good exercise to go through i think periodically to for everybody whether you're working or not to look at what your where your money's going you know and and mm-hmm. evaluate it because you know how it is you sign up for these monthly subscriptions and it just adds up it adds up a lot mm-hmm. and i spend a lot of time evaluating ways to do things that are less expensive and that helps reduce what we have to spend each month like I said, we're probably okay now, but it's just kind of a habit. Like we're looking at refinancing our house now because the mortgage rates, the rates are ridiculous, are so right? So it's like, why not? We save several hundred dollars a month. Absolutely. So it's just sort of a habit that, that we both had. We're both frugal people. I'd say I'm more prone to wanting the bright, shiny, you know, fun objects and spending money more than Doug. He just wouldn't spend it at all. Yeah. <laughs> Only on toys. He will spend it on yeah. toys. He'll spend it on a, <laughs> on a new bike or a new kiteboard or whatever. But anything else, he's like, why? Why would we do that? Yeah. Home improvement? No. That's like, what? Why do you want to do that? Generally, in the financial independence community, they talk about the 4% right. rule of thumb, where if you live off of 4% of your nest egg, you can essentially live indefinitely based on this thing called the Trinity study. But if you want to be ultra conservative, they're saying that it's around 3.25%. Sounds like you guys are well below that. So you're, you're good to go. And with some, some income on the side, you're able to 
that very low right. so that the nest yeah. egg could continue to grow. Right. I'd say we were probably closer to the 3% earlier on. It's, it's come up now. It's probably closer to 4%. Actually, I haven't calculated it lately. But we're sticking to that, and we're assuming we have another 30 years to live off of this, and we don't really want to spend it to zero. We're assuming we're going to leave something mm-hmm. to the kids. So I got a side question. Love to get your thoughts, on, and this is coming from a personal place. What do you see as the difference between being frugal and being cheap? Yeah. Uh, oh. Because I, I find myself <laughs> on the wrong side of that equation sometimes. <laughs> what, you're, you're, you're cheap? You're being, you're accused of being cheap. (laughs) Accused and recognizing (laughs) my own tendencies. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's a fine line. And I think it's in the eye of the beholder, Um, really, because I tease Doug all the time about just being incredibly cheap. And and he comes back with, no, I'm being frugal. So it's an age old, (laughs) I think it's an age old question. I think that for me, there are, there are things in life that are worth spending money on. And Doug has sort of a flat, nothing is worth spending money on except toys, you know, particularly his toys. Right, right. <laughs> I, yeah. I have an aesthetic sense that, that I get a lot of pleasure from things like color and attractive environments and my garden and things like that. So I think what's happened over the years as we've become more secure with our financial independence that he has relaxed. And while he still doesn't like to spend a lot of money, he doesn't fight with me about spending money on things that he knows create a lot of pleasure for me. So that has reduced a lot of the tension. Sometimes you know, each partner has to compromise. And, and um, I think Doug's compromise has been, okay, I don't personally want to spend money on that, but I see that it makes you really happy. And so I need to step back from that. Other times, you know, he balances me out where he says, you know, we don't need that. And then I have to sit there and think about it and go, well, you know what, you're right, we don't need that. So it's a conversation that doesn't end. It's sort of a constant back and forth. And I respect cheap. I I respect frugal. Cheap sometimes is irritating, but I respect frugal. We've also agreed that what is worth spending money on are experiences as opposed to stuff. And sometimes you have to buy the stuff to have the experience. So, you know, if you want to go mountain biking in a beautiful place, you do need to have the mountain bikes, you know. And also we did purchase a Sprinter van five years ago in order to allow us that freedom of jumping in the car and and going somewhere without reservations. And, and that has actually saved a lot of money. We can travel and live very cheaply. And, and we love that. It's really fun to go on a two to three week vacation. And all you spend money on is food and gas. It's like we still love to go on cheap vacations, even though yeah. we could afford to do more probably. For me, it's like trying to come more towards value. What do we value? And I think recognizing what I value, but also recognizing what my wife values and realizing those things are different. My friend is very big on this financial independence stuff as well. And he got me into it. And he gave me a rule that has this idea that if it's under $20, there's no argument. Oh, Uh, right. Okay. Because it's not worth it. So trying to live by that, you know, it's, uh, it's it's tricky for sure. Because for me, there was a time where, where early on in the being into this financial independence that I realized like, Hey, every 
dollar I spend could be $10 in retirement. Right. And so then it's like putting everything through that filter. It's like, well, maybe this isn't worth it. But yeah. um, I think I need to pull it back a little bit, especially as I progress along the path and start to have more confidence in the plan and realize that not stressing about money is the whole point of financial right. independence. And so if I'm right. causing stress for myself and with my relationship with my wife, I'm not really living the, the value uh, of financial right. independence and what I'm hoping exactly. to give me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lori. Really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. And I hope you stay safe and healthy. Same to you, Adam. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Mindful Fire podcast. If you got value from today's episode, please hit the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this or watching this on. This just lets the providers know you're getting value from the episodes and you'd like to be here when we produce additional content. And if you'd like to be notified whenever we post a new episode, please join our mailing list at mindfulfire.org. Mm -hmm.